Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kira Miller. In The Wizard of Oz, the way you get to Oz from, let's say, a place like Kansas is to cross a huge desert. The desert is a reminder of how hard it is to get from this world to a very different sort of world. We must be over the rainbow. That piece of The Wizard of Oz crossed my mind when I flew into Los Angeles recently. Folks, this is your initial descent into the LAX airport area as you heard Rick Benson. It felt like a literal and figurative transition. This week, we're doing a whole show focused on California. L.A. is actually where I spent my summers when I was a kid, where my mom grew up, and it's a place that now, in our current political climate, is a kind of alternate universe. This is the state that many see as leading the opposition to President Trump, including Sherry Bebich Jeffy, a professor of public policy at the University of Southern California and a longtime commentator on California's place in the national political scene. Sherry, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So I'm going to start by playing you a clip. Uh, Back in February, former Fox News host Bill O'Reilly sat down for an interview with President Trump, and he talked with him about the role of California uh, going forward. Here's a little bit of that. I just spent the week in California. As you know, they are now voting on whether they should become a sanctuary state. So California and the USA are on a collision course. How do you see it? Well, I think it's ridiculous, uh, sanctuary cities. Uh, As you know, I'm very much opposed to sanctuary cities. They breed crime, there's a lot of problems. If we have to, we'll defund. We give tremendous amounts of money to California. So you're going to defund. California in many ways is out of control, as you know. Obviously, the voters agree, otherwise they wouldn't have voted for them. So a couple things in that clip, but one is this idea that California and the U.S. are on a collision course. Do you think that's true? Well, as far as California is concerned, it looks like the union has seceded from California. (laughs) Yeah, I think there is some truth to that because we are so far advanced in areas such as health care, health care reform, such as climate change, such as even infrastructure right now. Uh, And we have not yet formalized California as a sanctuary state, but we are far more supportive of immigration and immigrants than the nation is, and certainly than uh, Donald Trump is. So there has got to be, at some point, a debate over many issues, California versus Trump. California gave Hillary Clinton her popular vote history. Donald Trump owes us nothing. Hmm. And he he sounded like that in the clip. I mean, he said a tremendous amount of money goes to California. California, in many ways, is out of control. Now, if you... I don't know what he meant by that. <laughs> We're more in control than the nation is <laughs> economically. And by the way, California does send to Washington 
more money than Washington sends back to right, us. Right, right. Well, and that's interesting because that's not true of every state, but it is true of California that, as you say, sure more is. money goes to the federal government than flows back to California. You talked about California being ahead in certain areas, climate change, health care, in your view. Um, do you think that... that it's California- real. It's just not my view. Okay. Trust me. <laughs> so, I mean, what do you think Donald Trump is now rolling back? California has done well under Obamacare. Uh, We've had no problems with it. California has the toughest auto admission standards, very tight environmental controls. I mean, and we are very receptive of immigrants, including undocumented immigrants, by and large. Right. We are 180 degrees away from where Donald Trump and the federal government today is. So when it comes to those issues, to health care, to climate change, to immigration, do you think that the Trump administration has a lot of leverage to, I don't know, change California's progress, to halt it, to get it to start interfering? What, what's the Trump administration's ability here? Definability. I mean, clearly any president has significant ability to have an impact on state policy, if only because so much money comes from the feds. And right now, this state is facing a $1.6 billion budget deficit. So we don't want to lose any more money. But I don't think you know, this state is going to roll over and play dead for the president of the United States. We've just come too far. Again, remember, this is a state that is really a nation state. It is a state that has the sixth highest economy in the world. Right. If it was a country, it would be one of the most important economies in the world. You betcha. So as California goes very often, so goes the nation. So Yeah, I think Donald Trump will learn at some point that it it simply can't be a one-way, no, 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 you can't California, Mm -hmm. because California will have an influence on not only the national economy, but the international economy. Uh, You mentioned this, but the... um California was a leader long ago on emission standards for cars. And it it changed the way that cars are made in the whole country because, you know, what company wants to make like a car for California and then a different car, right, for, you know, South Dakota. So so California has so many people. It has so much economic pull that once California said, this is how we want you to make your cars, people just said, the companies just said, okay, sure, fine. Do you think that California is ready to exercise those kinds of sort of lead by example and lead with people kind of way because California's got a lot of people. Well, they've already done it, and we will continue to do it. It's as, it's as simple as that. And there are many other states now who understand the necessity for these uh, regulations. And if the Trump administration and the president are being truthful in their promise to, to put regulation authority back to the states, mm-hmm. that, you know, we will not be negatively impacted And this is a big if, remember. You don't know where this administration is going to go on this issue at this point in time, at least not yet. But if indeed the states become the arbiter of public policy, 
California will remain at the forefront of all of these issues. And we are seeing other states move to California's position rather than the Fed's. I know uh, that Governor Jerry Brown has said sort of fiery things about, look, if if we can't get climate change data anymore, we'll we'll just get it ourselves. You know, like we will we will do the things we will fill the void. But I also wonder if there is fear that it's not just going to be a void. It's going to be a roadblock and that California is going to be limited in the degree to which it can like go over that roadblock. The biggest roadblock, I think, will be cost. And, of course, public support for whatever is put out there. Mm-hmm. Remember, this governor, in his first iteration as governor in the mid-'70s, proposed that the state of California put in orbit its own satellite. And people laughed. And people called him Governor Moonbeam. Right. Well, now it doesn't seem so far-fetched. <laughs> so California has threatened to go on its own in a big way before. So uh, let's hear from this man, uh, Jerry Brown. Uh, This is a clip of him from March um, talking to Chuck Todd on uh, Meet the Press. We're not going to sit around and just play patsy and say, hey, go ahead, lock us in, do whatever the hell you want, uh, deport two billion, two million people. No, we're going to fight, and we're going to fight very hard. But we're not going to bring stupid lawsuits or be run to the courthouse every day. We're going to be careful, we'll be strategic, and we'll do the right human, and I would even say Christian thing from my point of view. Sherry Bevich, Jeff Deesh from um, USC. Give me a sense of what you think Jerry Brown is going to do from here. What does his roadmap look like, do you think? Well, first of all, I, I would say that uh, that observation that the governor gave to Chuck Todd is quintessential Jerry Brown. It is, and I think he laid out in that quote, what he is going to do. He has only two years left in the office of governor and he's term limited, he cannot run again. He owes no political debt at this point in time. He said, well, I'm not going to run for another political office. And then he sort of hemmed and hawed about president, but he'll be 82 (laughs) probably before he can run. That means he's free of Mm. political constraints if he chooses to be. He can challenge the feds. He can challenge uh, legislators who do not agree with him. He can move on his own policy agenda. Indeed, he is focused very clearly on his legacy as governor. And I think that's the direction in which he is going to go. Mm. I also think that his Jesuit training, when he was a, a young man in the seminary, still lies within him. And again, what he said in that quote maintains. So one thing that we seem to see going forward um, is that California is kind of moving along with this very different vision of the future, uh, at least from the federal government. And one of the things that caught my eye is that Gavin Newsom, who's the current lieutenant governor um, running for governor in 2018, has talked about universal health care. There's actually a single-payer bill written by two California state senators that is being discussed right now. It's like California is becoming its own universe um, and its own democratic laboratory. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) But it's happened before. And don't forget the wildfire that spread across 
the U.S. with regard to property taxes and tax reform with the Reagan Revolution, which was a significantly conservative move, started in California. It's not that we're going to, you know, wide-eye liberals all, all the time, but it is that we try things. Mm-hmm. We are the West. We are the frontier. <laughs> it is as though Washington is an alternate universe right now. In fact, that's what's motivated the Cal exit yeah. movement. Yes. Never going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> but people are focusing on it. Uh, no, so you, your prediction is no secession from the union for California. It's just too difficult. <laughs> you know, you've got to have a two-thirds of each house of Congress. Then you've got to have 38 states willing to see California go, which might not be a problem, quite frankly, you know, in the way California is looked at, particularly in the South. But it's been tried before. It hasn't happened. I just don't see at this point in time that that's a realistic possibility. Hmm. Who knows? But not right now. Sherry Bebich Jeffy is a public policy professor at the University of Southern California. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. If you want to hear more about California in the Trump era, including why some countries are negotiating climate agreements directly with Governor Jerry Brown rather than with the federal government, we've got a smorgasbord of reading all at our website, innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. And from Destination Medical Center, a strategic economic initiative in Rochester, Minnesota, to build global destinations for life science, medicine, and health. Learn more at dmc.mn. The energy crises of the 1970s had a bunch of effects, apart from the obvious. Gas lines that were so long, people worried they weren't going to be able to get the fuel they needed to get to work. Gasoline shortages are spreading across the country. Odd even service, gasoline lines and closed gas stations are becoming increasingly common. I can't take it anymore. I've been carpooling. It's my turn to get gas. Thank God I'm able to get gas today. I don't care how much it costs. I just got to get gas. I got to get to work. One of those effects was additional strains on the presidency of Jimmy Carter, who would soon be replaced by the former governor of California, Ronald Reagan. And another effect of the gas crises was that a teenager named Nathan Lewis thought, there's only one real solution here, science. I was uh, one of the people that was waiting with my parents in gas lines for two hours because in the 70s there was a real oil crisis. And I wanted to do something about that. But he says the scientific tools just weren't there. Now things have changed. Lewis is a professor at the California Institute of Technology, Caltech, and one of the country's leading energy researchers. His work has attracted the attention of Bill Gates, among others. And he says it's crucial that the lessons of the 1970s not be forgotten. We had a technical problem then that was to people of my generation, kind of like the moonshot, right, where we had grown up with the space race, 
but we had people draining people's gasoline tanks and they would siphon out your gas. Uh, we couldn't get anywhere. Everybody was squawking about alternatives and why we're over a barrel from the Middle East who are really, they were hostages. This was a serious problem. Uh, and there was a thought that technology could get us out of that. Uh, Jimmy Carter, President Carter started the Solar Energy Research Institute that became the National Renewable Energy Lab. Uh, there was a huge interest and momentum in trying to do things about alternatives uh, that permeated all the way down to teenagers. But then human nature kicked in. The government got busy with other things, and we took our eye off the ball. That oil crisis went away. The price of oil dropped. $8 a barrel. We didn't really do any energy research for two decades. What Lewis believes is that we may be closing in on huge breakthroughs. Science has already increased efficiency tremendously. While our economy has grown a lot since the 1970s, our consumption of oil is pretty much flat, which is shocking when you look at the numbers. But an alternative to oil is still the brass ring for Nathan Lewis. We wouldn't fight wars with people if we didn't have to worry about their natural resources. We wouldn't deal with all sorts of geopolitical issues. We wouldn't have the geopolitics of dictatorships. And on and on again, if we could really make inroads into the energy problem. So it is interrelated. It's dealing with the water problem. Plenty of water, not where you need it when you want it. Just like plenty of oil, not where you need it when you want it all the time. They are very closely related. So Lewis's solution is artificial photosynthesis. He's been working on it for years, converting the sun's light into energy, just like plants do. So the real issue with solar energy is twofold. Uh, one, uh, that electricity is expensive energy. And two, can't store it never been able to store it since Edison realized this in 1931. And when it comes to the sun, he that cannot store shall not have power after four. So the best way to store energy is in chemical bonds. That's where oil, coal, and gas stores energy. So we should do the same thing. Find a way to store the energy, that biggest resource we have, the sun, in chemical bonds. Photosynthesis is nature's solution to doing exactly that. The issue is that photosynthesis is not very efficient. The fastest growing plants store less than 1% of the energy of sunlight in a year in all of the biomass. So that doesn't mean we can't do it better. In the same way that uh, birds fly, but we don't build aircraft with feathers, once you know it's possible to fly, you design a human-powered aircraft uh, that works with jet engines, that works and flies faster than any bird. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to develop, inspired by nature, a photosynthetic system that produces the same functions. It takes the biggest resource, the sun, and makes stored fuel, but it does it in a way that's at least 10 times more efficient than the fastest growing crop. It will last and not have to be rebuilt and every country has enough sunlight to support their energy economy forever. How would this photosynthesis-inspired system work? 
Lewis says it would be nothing like solar panels. Instead, it would be soft, and you'd be able to put tiny fibers on it, nanofibers, that would soak up the sun's energy all day long. It would be something that you would think about as a high-performance rain jacket, a fabric, literally a piece of plastic, with our nanofibers embedded in it, blue on one side, red on the other, that you would roll out like tarp or artificial turf and hook it up to drainage pipes, just like we have now for drainage, except that you would be draining fuel when sun hit the artificial grass uh, that you deployed in something like a football field. So just like a plant, those nanofibers, which if you get down to a really tiny scale, actually look a lot like trees, would be turning the sun's energy into usable fuel. Fuel you could put into your car, you could put it onto a plane, it could go to a power plant that would turn it into electricity, exactly like we do with oil. Lewis's lab has made tremendous progress on the project. Bill Gates, who I mentioned before visited the lab, says we're in serious need of a quote-unquote energy miracle, which this could prove to be. And Lewis says that the race towards a solution has engaged a new cohort of brilliant minds, much like the energy crises of the 1970s that propelled him into science when he was a young man. The energy problem has definitely captured the imagination of this generation of young scientists. And from a viewpoint of, of national funding, uh, the worst thing we can do is cut that talent pool off by stopping funding for these projects because then we screw up all that momentum that we've built up and we also lose the lead that we have built up with respect to other countries who are trying to pour resources into this. So if I were to bet, I would bet on our young scientists that America has grown up and I keep saying that if Congress bets on that money and funds this research, I'll double down with them and we'll do our part if they come through and do theirs. So we've been uh, focusing in our look at California this week on the fact that the state seems to be just a world apart from Washington, D.C. right now. And uh, the governor, Jerry Brown, has been very vocal about his belief in climate change. He said um, if Trump turns off the satellites that gather data on climate change, California, this is a quote, will launch its own damn satellite. Um, Do you think there's more that California could do to really lead the opposition here? I would love to see a, a concrete proposal where the governor were to lead and put his money behind what his statements are and really bring the state of California what we did for stem cells. Let's go do that for clean energy and go our own way and support our own policies. Can you imagine that happening? Have you heard anyone talking about it? Because I think, um, and you know, you talked about stem cells, but I think when George W. Bush put more restrictions on stem cell research, right, the California said essentially, uh, we don't care, we're gonna help fund research on stem cells in California. That's exactly what happened. There was a ballot initiative passed where a bond was floated. And when there were federal restrictions on stem cell research, Californians stepped up and funded it at a level that was bigger than the federal government. And many of the leading researchers in the country moved to California because that's where they could get their work done and they served the interests of the state and the nation. A model like that to pick up the clean energy R&D part, not just the deployment part, 
of the innovation ecosystem could really exploit the skill base that was here and the innovation areas that are here and would be, a, I think, an incredible legacy for the governor to leave behind. And I think that would be a fantastic thing for us to do. That would be a fascinating situation if people were just leaving their positions at UT Austin and, you know, University of Wisconsin and Cornell and just moving to California because California offered some huge amount of money. That would be a great thing. It doesn't even take a huge amount of money. Uh, the discussions that us academics and basic researchers have had is that two cents a gallon gas tax, for instance, if put based on the amount of gasoline consumed every year into this would generate half a billion dollars a year in revenue for research and development. Hmm. Finally, you've spent a lot of your life in a lab. When you look at the temperature, uh, the average yearly temperature around the world, of course, increases every year. Do you ever feel like uh, we're doing an experiment on ourselves, but we don't actually know what the end of the experiment is? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we know uh, that anthropogenic human emissions are the basis for the rising carbon dioxide. We also know that within our lifetimes, it's going to be double what any human would have otherwise experienced. We know for 670,000 straight years, year by year, that when CO2 levels have gone up or down, temperatures have also then gone up or down. We don't know what the future will bring, absolutely. But if you want to feel good about betting against 670,000 straight years of data and knowing uh, that CO2 levels, even if we stop, will last in the air for 3,000 years and will last in our oceans for 2 million years. And so if we get to a bad place, there is no way out for generations to come. Then that's a bet that you can take, but I somehow don't feel so comfortable not saying that I did everything I could to find a way out of that issue. And that's what we're trying to do. Nathan Lewis is a professor at Caltech and one of our country's leading solar fuel researchers. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was good to be here. Sunshine, sunshine, it's fine. I feel it in my skin, warming up my mind. Sometimes you gotta give in to win. I love the days when it shines. Whoa, let it shine. If you want to take a deep dive and understand the chemistry of Nathan Lewis's work, we've got him explaining the specifics at our website. Plus, he tells us how a lab really operates, how much you're thinking about big problems, and how much you grinding it out day to day. I think it's about the 80-20 rule. Um, about 80% of it's day to day and 20% of it's abstract. About 80% of the work is done in 20% of the time, and 20% of the work takes 80% of the time. About 20% of the people end up doing 80% of the publishable results. <laughs> the boss probably does 20% of the work and, and yaks about it 80% of the time. I think there's a very general 80-20 here that's just probably within experimental error right in a bunch of six different cases. That's at innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub's environmental and sustainability reporting is provided by the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. You may have heard this story before, but here it is. A beautiful but self-centered actress realizes her career is starting to slip away, 
and she comes up with a cruel method of salvaging it. The idea is to crush the career of a young and undiscovered but more talented actress who has captured the heart of the guy she loves. And while she's at it, this beautiful self-centered actress wants to steal the younger actress's talent by having her dub her lines in a high-profile movie. Because it turns out that beauty alone can only get you so far. What's wrong with the way I talk? What's the big idea? Am I dumb or something? That's Lena Lamont from the movie Singing in the Rain. She's not a real person, but she expresses a real fear that a change in technology, in this case the move from silent films to talking films, is going to ruin her. If she's done such a grand job doubling for my voice, don't you think she ought to go on doing just that? And nothing else. Lena, you're out of your mind. After all, I'm still more important to the studio than she is. Lena, I wouldn't do that to her in a million years. Why, you'd be taking her career away from her. People just don't do things like that. People? I ain't people. I am a... A shimmering, glowing star in the cinema firmament. Mark Wanamaker, a longtime Hollywood historian and a consultant on films like La La Land, says that the pain of technological upheaval, which has been talked about so much in relation to politics and American culture today, that's nothing new. And in the 1920s, it ripped Hollywood apart. It did ruin careers. It even strained relationships. We're going to go down and we're going to pass in a few moments the uh, bungalow of Douglas Fairbanks where he courted Mary Pickford in 1920, where he produced out of this bungalow the Three Musketeers and the Mark of Zorro, as well as other films when he was here. And um, here, I believe, United Artists Studio was born here. That's where the first meetings were held here. Mm. And before he married Mary Pickford, who was working across the street where Paramount is today, it was another studio at the time, we're talking 1919, 1920, um, she used to come here and rendezvous with him. This was their, their little nest. I met Wanamaker on a rainy day in Hollywood, which is unusual. And even more unusual, I had an undiagnosed upper respiratory infection. I finally realized it, but not until I spent an interesting morning in a Beverly Hills urgent care clinic. So anyway, back to my visit with Mark Wanamaker. We walked in the rain around one of the oldest studio backlots in Hollywood, Raleigh Studios, which has been in use for over a hundred years. And it's particularly special because of its association with Fairbanks and Pickford, the sort of Brad and Angelina of their day. Except that Fairbanks and Pickford were global stars at a time when there weren't many other people on the red carpet. They were megastars on steroids. And the coming of sound, Wanamaker says, put strain on their marriage because Mary made the transition while her husband struggled. Doug was extremely insecure by the time sound came in. He thought his career was over. He, he was very, very, uh, you know, sensitive. She tried to bring him into the sound thing. They did two or three pictures with sound, but he was, in his mind, just drifting away. Did and they think separated. his voice wasn't good enough, or what was No, it no, it wasn't okay. that. He okay. just didn't fit in. He felt he didn't fit in. And that broke up their marriage. And they regretted it, both of them that this happened, that they couldn't come together and they didn't have counseling or any of this kind of thing, right? So it was a tragedy that they broke up and he died young, you know, in his 50s. And she dr started drinking and all this. She married a buddy, uh, Rogers, a friend of hers from years ago. It was a marriage of convenience, but she was happy and she lived to, to be in her 80s, but always regretted that Doug and her, that was the love of her life. 
Wanamaker says that what happened to Fairbanks and Pickford was a lot like the story of Singing in the Rain, in which just one member of an on-screen couple has the right skills for talking pictures. And there's trauma when only some people feel successful. Many of them uh, had to fall behind. Oh, they had a weird voice. They had a squeaky voice. I mean, the man looks like, you know, a big he-man, and he has a squeaky voice. No good. The woman has a squeaky Brooklyn accent or something. No good. So then a whole new industry of voice coaches came in to, to coach them on losing their accent or lowering their voice or or um, just how to speak properly on Which the stage. Which is a big part of Singing in the Rain, right? They do have to get voice coaches who teach you them how that? to be sort of debonair. Now let me hear you read your line. And I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. Can't. 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 And what's so great about Singing in the Rain, they have this technique in which, remember, Debbie Reynolds goes behind there and speaks and sings and stuff for the woman who, the other actress, who was a big silent star, can't do anything. And her voice is horrible. What are you going to sing, Miss Lamont? Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain. In uh, what key? A flat. A flat. In A flat. What a perfect film, and that's exactly, and also, where do you put the mics? They didn't know how, where to put the microphones. They put them in flower pots, if you noticed in there, or they, they finally started hanging them. They were giant microphones uh, called cylinder microphones. They weighed like 20 pounds, and they finally had to build booms to hold these things, and, and then say, you're right, right now, I'm talking into a mic. Say, right now, I'm speaking to someone else on my left, over here. Oh, wait a minute. The mic has to follow me over. See the trouble? Yeah. Now, Lena, look. Here's the mic. Right here in the bush. Yeah. Now you talk towards it. The sound goes through the cable to the box. A man records it on a big record in wax. But you have to talk into the mic first. In the bush. If you go back to the teens and the 20s, and you think about, like, these big stars. Do you think people thought we're at the beginning of something huge? Or do you think they thought, who knows where this is going? Like, did they realize that they were pioneers and innovators, in, you know, in the way we think of them now? Yeah. Uh, at the time when sound was coming in, people like Roy, Walt Disney, Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, all these silent people, you know, who worked in the silent industry, absolutely, this was a revolution in sound. It was a revolution in the f making of films. And they were making all kinds, of, they had to write scripts differently. This was incredible. Now, at the early days, they would take stage plays and film them. They didn't know what else to do. They don't know how to write. How do you write a screenplay with, that's made for sound? They, they had to relearn the whole industry. King Vidor, the famous director, 
he told me that he was, he, by the way, he was a great silent filmmaker, which is a whole different way of making films. It's more symbolic. You don't hear dialogue. It's, it's faces, it's movements, it's, and locations, things like this. Sound is words, uh, and, and it's a whole different thing. People think that Warner Brothers, who did The Jazz Singer with Al Jolson, was the first talkie film. It's not. There were talkie films and musical films all the way back to 1898. Alice Guy Blachet, the first woman director in the world in France in 1890s, made 103 sound films before 1905. Wow. They had special sound companies all around the country, United States and Europe, that were making sound films. That This is the difference. You remember IMAX? When IMAX came out, you cannot show IMAX anywhere. It had, you have to build a theater for IMAX. Hmm. It has to be a special place. It's, otherwise, it's just a novelty. You see it at the museum, which we used to have here at the L.A. County Museum, IMAX. Few people saw it. So same thing in the sound industry. You had to outfit all the theaters in the world with sound equipment and special projectors. So when, when there was that switchover from silent movies to talking pictures, um, how did theaters go about like retrofitting their theater to have sound in them? Such an critically important question. So in those days, they had theaters all over the country that, that showed silent films. Now, silent films were never silent. They were always with a live orchestra, piano, organ, whatever, whoever they could afford to have. They, they had this. But in 19, um, as I mentioned earlier, there were sound films for, for 20 years. But you needed special equipment in those theaters to see them. And very few theaters had this. It was a novelty. So the first company to really seriously put their money where their mouth was was the Warner Brothers. It was in 1926 when they, they invested with banks millions of dollars in putting sound equipment in the theaters. Nobody else was willing to try because what if the public's not interested in talking films? So they decided to try out Don Juan, which was the famous story Don Juan with John Barrymore. But he wasn't talking in it. It would be sound synchronized orchestra music to go in the background and sound effects. Remember when, well, if you've seen the film, there's sword fighting. So the sword fighting, you'd hear clicking sounds, you know, click, 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 and uh, other sound effects. So they opened it up in 1926, great success. Everyone thought this is fantastic. The, you know who didn't like it? The uh, musician unions around the country. That means they don't need orchestra anymore. Oh man, there was such a hue and cry for the musicians. So the studios employed them in other ways, uh, other methods and whatever to keep them quiet. And then um, shortly after this, Warner Brothers decided, okay, we're gonna try out now musical soundtrack, but also talking and singing on the films. And so they got Al Jolson, who was one of the biggest stars on the stage ever, superstar at that time. Any of you who have never heard of Al Jolson, you have to just look him up on Wikipedia and you'll understand why he was big superstar. And um, so they got him to do The Jazz Singer, which was a typical story about a, uh, uh, a young jazz singer who happens to be Jewish, and his parents were Orthodox Jews who, who thought he should be a cantor singing religious music, you know, in the temple. And he says, no, I want to sing jazz, right? So there's a conflict in here. That's what the, the plot is. So Al Jolson, for the first time, people can see him and hear him 
singing his some of his famous songs. Mama, listen, I'm going to sing this like I will if I go on the stage, you know, with this show. I'm going to sing it jazzy. Now get this. Blue sky, smiling at me, 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 me. Nothing but little blue sky, do I see? Do, 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 do. And it was a smash. Immediately, the other studios who were ready to go, gearing up, ready to invest the money, invested it. When Warner Brothers said, we want to spend a whole ton of money wiring up theaters so that they'll be able to have sound in them, was Warner Brothers really scared about that? I mean, were they just thinking, this could be throwing tremendous amounts of money away? A great, great question. There were four brothers. Two of them particularly did not want this. <laughs> they di- were worried they would be bankrupt in no time. Because brothers they had, divided. Because they had hard times between 1922 and 1926. Rin Tin Tin, their star of the silent era, was the who, only who thing. Who was a dog, we should say. He was a dog. People didn't know. Was saving Big the star, studio. huge star dog. They, they were saving the studio because they were invested in theaters and everything else. They were not doing well. They were not doing well mm-hmm. in, in the flapper era, as you think they might. So, yes, so... So Sam Warner convinced them, we have to do this, and he pushed it and pushed it. Finally, the jazz singer comes out, and, and they were just about to open the jazz singer in Los in Hollywood at the new Warner Theater. They just built it, Wilcox and Hollywood Boulevard, and he died of an of a infection in his ear. He died right before. It's so weird. He's the one that pushed all of this, and he dies on them. But the rest is history. Warner Brothers was successful. All the other studios jumped on the bandwagon, sound films, to what we have today. Were, I mean, movies have always been popular. Did did bringing sound into movies make them a lot more popular? Great, another great question. Um, the whole silent industry, which was 30 years, uh, was very popular. Serials and just everything, westerns and dramas, whatever you want. Shakespeare was being made. Epic films, et cetera, et cetera. And um, people were fascinated with the moving picture for those 30 years. They didn't have a moving picture until it started in 1898 when they started filming trains coming in and women's skirts blowing up. By the way, Marilyn Monroe's skirt blowing up is nothing new. They did that in 1903. And it was done in New York in which a woman with her husband walking down the street and in the subway blows her skirt up. Wow, that was a big deal, right? Wait, accidentally or like No, no, that planned, was on purpose. Okay, okay. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> but people in the audience went flipped out at this. <laughs> so anyway, but my point is is that when sound came in, it was a novelty that they turned into the popular fair as something new. They all of a sudden they have musicals leading into Singing in the Rain, which is a typical film a musical of the 50s, talking about how this all happened. And after that, we had musicals forever, you know, everything from West Side Story to whatever you have from the Broadway to other original musicals just made for films. So it was always uh, trying to, to create something new just to bring more people to the theaters. So is there a movie that's been like the most, you know, sort of pivotal movie in your own life? Yeah, that would be Sunset Boulevard, made at Paramount, with uh, William Holden, of course, and uh, Billy Wilder, who was the uh, director. And I love it because Gloria Swanson is in it. She stars as Norma Desmond. What is important about this film? This film was made in 1949 to 50, released in 50. It's very important to me because it represents, symbolically, the end of the silent film era into a modern era, which is the sound era. 
And um, it's all about these famous people, directors, actors, whoever they were, who worked in the silent era and how their careers had ended because of it, because of sound coming in. And it also represents Hollywood, of the new Hollywood and the old Hollywood. And it's so strange because I visited the old back lots. I met many of the people that were in the silent era. It was, it's another era. That's the word for it. So this, I, I see this film, and it just brings home to me that this writer, William Holden, who's like, nobody wants him anymore, and it's a new, younger people coming in, and how he's trying to get a job in the business, and they look at him, he's a has-been. Here we have Gloria Swanson, one of the greatest, biggest movie stars in the world, who is now living as a recluse in her home with her butler, who happened to be her director, who lost his career as well. Wait a minute, haven't I seen you before? I know your face. Get out, or shall I call my servant? You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures, used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Uh -huh. I knew there was something wrong. They're dead, they're finished. There was a time in this business when they had the eyes of the whole wide world. But that wasn't good enough for them, oh no. They had to have the ears of the world too. So they opened their big mouths and out came talk. Talk, talk. That's where the popcorn business comes in. You buy yourself a bag and plug up your ears. And here she's thinking of making a comeback. She's writing a great script. It's, it's old-fashioned. Nobody wants it. But she, she's living in an illusion. And she, she gets this writer, William Holden, who's a has-been, to write this for her. He sees that it's just crazy lunacy. And by accident, she drives, her butler drives a great car, which the studios would like to use in a film. So they contact her. And she's delusional and thinks, they want me back. So she comes to the studio in all of her pomp and circumstances to see Mr. DeMille, who's still working. He's one of the few working in Hollywood. And DeMille, actually as DeMille in the film, and she comes to the stage and he sees her and, oh, it's great to see you again. And DeMille says, what's she doing here? And they say, well, there's a mistake, communication. They just want her car. They don't want her. Wanted what? DeMille didn't have the heart to tell you. None of us has had the heart. That's a lie. They want me. I get letters every day. You tell her, Max. Come on, do her that favor. Tell her there isn't going to be any picture. There aren't any fan letters except the ones you write. That isn't true. Max! You can see the, the dynamics of this script. It is so nostalgic, so tragic. And in the end, she ends up shooting Holden and killing him because he wants out. And she just can't have it. And she shoots him by accident, of course. But still, the tragedy of all this, the end of the silent film industry is the end. You know what I mean? This is it. So to me, this is so emotional for me to see it. Right. Well, and it's a lot of, at any juncture like that, it's a ton of upheaval. I have to say, I've never seen Sunset Boulevard. It's but an you've, upheaval. That's you've it. inspired me. I'm going to go home. Oh, you have to see it. And watch Sunset Boulevard. Okay. It's an upheaval of a whole industry, people. Uh, involved personalities, uh, real people, humanity involved, yeah. who are, who will die off obscure. It's adaptation, and some people will, and some people won't. Exactly. Yeah. That's why Sunset Boulevard is my favorite film, and Singing in the Rain is my favorite for similar reasons. Mm. We, I mean, um, Gene Kelly is on his way out, 
and here's Debbie Reynolds coming and gives him new life. It's all related to the to the um, different changes in film industry, not just film industry. It's every industry really, as the new is taking over the old. Old eras go out, but these are the pioneers. That's why we can't throw them away. We have to listen to them, learn from the people of the past, so we don't repeat the problems that we've had in the in the past, in the future, in the present. Like all the technology and everything, everybody thinks it just came out of nowhere. No, all these people spent their whole lives developing this technology that we have today. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling, I'm happy again. A huge thank you to Hollywood historian Mark Wanamaker for sitting down and talking to me and for walking me around Raleigh Studios where we chit-chatted for a long time about everything from competition to Hollywood from other locations around the globe to the 1938 film Robin Hood with Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland, which it turns out we both love and I really suggest you check it out. Thanks also to the wonderful folks at Caltech who helped coordinate our visit to Nathan Lewis's lab. On our Facebook page, if you want to see pictures from our trip to California, we've got your behind-the-scenes tour of Hollywood and science labs. That's all at facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Plus, we did a really tasty interview on how Los Angeles has changed food in America. Stay tuned. We're going to have that on an upcoming show. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producer Mark Sollinger, and engineer Doug Sugertz. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. PRI. Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com.